Welcome back to the Grace Life Fellowship podcast. This past Sunday here at GLF, Pastor Frank continued his Thanksgiving series that he's calling Being Thankful. This is the second part of the series. If you'd like to start at the beginning, go back to episode 23 before you listen to this one. This week's message is called An Attitude of Serving. We hope you enjoy it. Here's Pastor Frank. I'll tell you a funny story. I was um, doing a men's retreat for this mega church. And so there were like 1,200 men at this retreat. And it was originally just supposed to be me teaching. And then they called up and they said, well, we've got this other guy. We want him to teach too. And so I said, well, that's fine. It's your conference, not mine. And, and the guy that they brought in was like a professional conference speaker. He, he has like 10 messages you know, that he travels around. But when that's all you got, man, you can really refine that thing. And so he was hilarious. He was like a stand-up comedian. And every once in a while, he'd slip some truth in. And, and uh, then I got up there. And um, so during the day, of course, he went first. And then during the day, you know, I'm walking around and meeting guys, and, and I'm overhearing the conversation. What do you think of that guy, our speakers? Oh, that guy's so funny. What do you think of the other guy? Well, he's all right. You know, and this went on all day. And so that night, sure enough, he speaks again, and he's downright hilarious. Everybody's cracking up. And then it's, it's my turn. And so I'm sitting in the back, going over my notes, and this guy comes up, and he goes, can we pray for you? And, you know, me, I'm like, absolutely, man, I'll take every prayer I can get. And he goes, pre-planned, like 30 guys pop up and come around me. And I'm like, okay. And so when there are that many guys and you're sitting, it's uncomfortable. So I, I stood up and I said, let me put my notes down. And I stood up and they all did the hand thing. And this guy prays, I kid you not. Oh, Father, may this dear man trust you enough to not have to use notes. So I let him finish his prayer. But I was not happy. So I walked out, and it was a beautiful situation. There's a river there, and I stood on the banks of the river, and I said, Lord, I am really P.O.'d. And if you want to, Lord, I am really willing to go back in there and kick some major, <clears throat> and it was one of the most dynamic times I've ever had. I didn't hardly even look at my notes, so I guess the Lord answered his prayer. So <laughs> I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to do this today. We're two weeks away from Thanksgiving. Isn't that exciting? So using my college education... I came up with a plan of doing a series on Thanksgiving. It was a strain on the brain, to be sure. But if you were last, with us last time, you know that we said that being thankful is an internal attitude. It's a mindset. It's a choice of the will. 1 Thessalonians 5, in fact, says... In everything, give thanks. So that tells us it's something we can do. And it's, in fact, something we're called to do. We also noted 
that even though Thanksgiving is an internal issue, the basis for it is external. It's a response on our parts to something that has occurred outside of us that, that fosters or promotes or uh, we could say causes. I'm probably the best word is empowers us to be thankful. It's, in fact, one of the distinguishing marks, the identifying factors, I think, that sets us apart from the rest of the world. We acknowledge, because of all that Christ has done for us, that there is a God out there who has blessed us beyond what we could imagine. And if you just think about this idea of thanksgiving, we could spend, really, decades on it and not exhaust it. I mean, just ponder just, just a minute. Ephesians 1.3, he's blessed us with some spiritual blessings. That's not what he says. He says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's forgiven us. My gosh, we could just stop right there and let that empower us for the rest of our lives. I'm an old firsthand experience waking up in the morning and looking in the mirror sometimes and going, oh, you did it again. Anybody? Okay, a few of us. Okay, that's exciting. Guilt is gone. Shame is gone. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. We have the peace of God because we have peace with God. We've been set free from the law, free from having to achieve for ourselves placed into an intimate relationship with the God of the universe, so intimate that that he actually lives inside of us. You can't get any more intimate than that. It's wonderful. I like the way John 1 puts it. Heaven has been opened. The veil that that kept us separated has been torn. And, and, And not only do we now have access to God, but God has access to us. To be all that he longed to be to us for centuries that he couldn't be because the veil of sin separated us. There's no more separation ever. It's wonderful. In my heart of hearts, though, I wonder if that's good enough. And and what I mean by that is, is when we focus on what we have received, that's really only half the picture. It's really only half the story. Because the gospel doesn't just deal with the glory of what we received in Christ. It also presents to us the gloom that we used to have in Adam. And we said last time that if we really want to magnify an attitude of thanksgiving, If we really want to cement it in our hearts to not just be thankful every once in a while, but live in a a lifestyle of thanksgiving, we not only need to look this way at what we have received, but we need to look this way at what we've been redeemed from. It's not a fun thing to do. But I believe it's a very necessary thing to do. Because when you and I showed up on this planet, my friends, we entered into a life that is so very different from the life that God intended for us. 
This world is not the world we were designed to live in. The hearts that we showed up with on this planet were not the beautiful hearts that were originally given to us. The Bible says that Adam plunged us into death. That was never what God had for us. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 8. It's beautiful. I love it because it tells us what the heart of God really is for us, what it was for us, and what he designed and planned for us. It begins in verse 1 by saying, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You're, you're incredible. You're wonderful. And then he gives us the basis for saying that. And it's fascinating to journey through it. Because the psalmist then says this. When I look around at this great, big, wide world we live in, and the millions of millions of people that occupy it, it's very easy to feel pretty insignificant. And then when you look up and you get just a glimpse of how big the universe is, we can feel downright puny. That's Psalm 8. It minimizes us. Oh Lord, when I, when I look at all of that, the psalmist says, the work of your hands, what is man that you're even mindful of him? I mean, Lord, do you even think of us? Why would you even think of us? Anyone ever felt like that? But then it's almost as if it, when you keep reading, it's, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit grabs us by the shoulders and shakes us and the Holy Spirit says, stop it. Stop thinking like that. You've missed it. You don't understand the heart or the mind of God towards you at all. And then he goes on to explain the glorious intent that God has for us in our original design. God says, when I made you, I made you just a little lower than God. My, my friends, let that sink in. That's, that's hard to come to grips with. You're, you're so fantastic. It's almost as if he says, I couldn't make you any greater or you would be equal to God. You know, that really troubled the King James translators so much so that they took the word Elohim and translated it into angels. That was much more palatable. God made us just a little lower than the angels. It's not what it says. God made us just a little lower, just a little lower than God himself. Why would he do that? Keep reading. Because he designed us with honor and glory and dignity and crowned us with majesty so that, listen to this, we could rule over his handiwork. His original design, my friends, was that you and I would be his vice regents over creation. Incredible. It's what we were designed for. It's what we had. It's how it was. But there was a very fateful day 
when Adam sinned. And he ate from that forbidden tree and he forfeited the glory that God intended for us. And he plunged us into death and devastation and loss and emptiness and fear. You know, it's wonderful to be in Christ to find an answer to all of that. But I think in order to really magnify what in Christ means, we need to look at what in Adam means. You know, I, I believe in this so fully that when I, I travel around and teach, I tell people that the most important theological phrase they will ever hear is in Adam. And I hear people in response pull me aside and say, don't you mean in Christ? No, no, I don't. Because you'll never really appreciate what it means to be in Christ until you first understand that you were born in Adam. And you, when you embrace what you were, it's going to magnify who you now are. And you will not be able to stop thanking God for what he has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I know it's painful. But we're going to do it. We're going to take, oh my goodness, see what I mean? I guess that's where we're supposed to be. Hmm. I wanted to say a bunch of stuff that I can't find. Well, I guess we're going to have to do this from memory. Has it come to that? <laughs> so as painful as it is this morning... Instead of looking this way at Jesus, we're going to end up there. We've got to end well. But for the next few minutes, I want to look this way at what it was in Adam. And, you know, just like we said earlier, we could spend decades on what it means to be in Christ. I believe we could spend equally amounts of time looking at what it means to be in Adam. But if you're with us last week, we're going to focus on three specific issues. In Adam, we lost life. That means that everyone on this planet showed up looking for life. Adam lived inside out. He had life within him. We live outside in, trying to bring life back inside. I hope you realize that sets us up to instantly function as a tick. Sucking the life out of everybody we can find. Secondly, we were in an economy of receiving all that God is to all that we need. But in the fall, when Adam sinned, we got delivered into an economy of law. So we're looking for life and we have to achieve it. But then add the third major issue. We're going to be doing that under the lie that we shall be as God. That means... We can do this. 
We are strong. We are capable. We're always right and never wrong. You live with anybody like that? And we're in control, by the way. And we also now function as the judge, where we'll point out that you don't do it right because you don't do it the way I do it. Aren't we fun to live with? That's a, not exactly a recipe for community. It's not a recipe for harmony or oneness. I want you to listen for just a moment, and not just listen, but hear. There's a big difference. Uh, that was driven home to me once by little Leslie. I think she was about four years old. And I was, I was reading a newspaper on the couch. And she came in, as little girls will, and went on and on and on. Daddy, daddy, you know, and on. And, and I was reading the newspaper. And I said, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, I, I did hear every word she said. But those little hands grabbed that paper, pulled it down, put those little hands on my cheeks, turned my head like this, and said, look at me when I talk to you. <laughs> it's one thing to listen. It's another thing to hear. And what we are about to hear is what the Holy Spirit says about us in our state when we showed up on this planet born in Adam. It's graphic. It's not kind. But it's honest. In 2 Timothy 3, the Holy Spirit says this. For people, I think everyone in this room would qualify. For people are lovers of themselves. We could probably stop there and that'd be enough damage. But there's more. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless. This is the English Standard Version, by the way. Unappeasable. Isn't that an interesting word? Nothing's ever going to be good enough. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's not a pretty picture, but it's a picture we need to see. Maybe we need to read it again. We don't have time. Welcome to the world we live in. Have any of you ever been on the receiving end of that description of what men and women are like in this planet? Have any of you been on the giving end of that? My friends, one of the things that the Holy Spirit used to drive me to Jesus was having to look in the proverbial mirror and face what an ugly human being I had become. And how I had hurt people that didn't deserve to be hurt. I have used social media since it's come into play in a diligent effort to try to find a lot of those people and apologize to them. 
And the other half of the story that drove me to Jesus was also how many of those dear people had, had hurt me. And there were wounds that I couldn't deal with apart from Christ. And so what I want to do is take a brief tour through the Old and New Testaments and paint just a very brief picture. Add some brush strokes to what it means to be an Adam. People who dramatized it, people who manifested it, people who lived it out. It starts very early on the pages of Genesis. With a man who had lost life, lived in an economy of achieving, and thought he was the center of the universe. And when his offering to God was rejected, in competition with his brother Abel, Cain couldn't stand it. And so he rose up and eradicated his brother by killing him. Instantly. Following close on Cain's heels is a guy named Lamech. He disregards the heart of God, and he's the first man in Scripture to take two wives. And then he, he pours out in a, in a, in a, just a horrendous diatribe, if you will. There's a man who hurt me, so I killed him. You know, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 70 times seven. Great guy to have as a neighbor. Then you got Abraham and Sarah. Promised a child. God doesn't deliver on their time. So what do they do? They take matters in their own hands. After all, there is God. They can achieve. And so together, get this, together they plan adultery to accomplish a child. You believe that? How about Jacob deceived his father? Imagine deceiving your own father. Defrauding your brother out of his birthright. His sons were no better. They were so jealous of their brother Joseph, they sold him into slavery. How about David? Steals the wife of a poor man. And then murders him to hide what he did. How about resentful Jonah? The angry man, vehemently angry. Why? God showed grace to the Ninevites. Can you imagine getting mad because God shows grace and saves somebody? But when you read on in that passage, there's an amazing insight. God says he saved people that didn't know their right from their left. What does that mean? There are scholars who think that that means these people were just spiritually retarded. Is that a politically correct word to use today? Politically and um, spiritually insufficient. Would that be better? But there are some scholars who think it refers to little kids. After all, aren't little kids those who don't know their right from their left? If that's the case, it's a revelation of how ugly a human heart can be to get mad that God would save little kids. What about the prodigal? Hey, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I don't care about you. Give me my inheritance now. What about the Pharisees who took that woman caught in adultery? Rather than in compassion restoring her, they bring her into the public arena to shame her and degrade her. What about Jews, Judas sold the life of his Savior for 30 coins? What about Peter, so concerned about what people think? He'll pervert the gospel in his behavior. 
What about the Pharisee? He was so right, he was wrong. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Remember that poor traveler that got beat up on the side of the road, left for dead? Remember the priest and the Levite? The ones whose, whose hearts in the community are, are those hearts that are supposed to be the closest to God? And what'd they do? They crossed the road to go around him rather than risk defiling themselves. What about James and John? Remember what Jesus called them? The sons of thunder. You know, the Bible says in John 2 that Jesus knows the hearts of men. Remember in John 6, he says, the only reason you're following me is to get a free meal. So when he says the sons of thunder, you know, a lot of people think that's a compliment. What warriors? I don't, I don't think it was. You know, warriors can be very callous, very insensitive, void of compassion. When the people in Samaria didn't respond to Jesus' gospel immediately, they said, rain down fire and burn them up, Lord. This to the God who says, I'm not willing that any would perish. We find those same two on the pages of the New Testament when Jesus told the disciples of his impending death. It's hours away. And he spelled it out. He was very graphic. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be whipped. And then I'm going to be killed. And how did they respond? Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. We want you to grant that one of us sits on the right hand and one of us sits on the left when you come into your kingdom. Can you believe that? And when that didn't work, they got mama to go after Jesus. Surely he won't refuse a Jewish mother. One writer said of those two sons of thunder, and I think this is very insightful, they were hopelessly human and remarkably unremarkable. Wow, did you grasp that? He, he, that's a powerful statement. He said, when you look at what those two guys did, their insensitivity, their lack of compassion, their utter selfishness, what does he say? Well, that's human. It's, it's unremarkable. You see what he's saying? He's saying that's normal for the world we live in. Have we accomplished the purpose, I hope? The moment you and I put our faith in Christ... We're not part of that crowd anymore. By the grace of God, we did a complete 180. We know that the lie that we will be God has been refuted. We know that the economy of achieving has been removed. We know that the life from God has now been received. 
And the economy of receiving from the hand of God is the sphere in which we now live. First John 5 says, he who has the son has that life, the life, the life of God himself in us to be experienced by us and expressed through us to others. And we're now no longer normally human. We don't blend in with that selfish, self-exalting, self-gratifying mindset and behavior that the world has. We stand out in this world like the sun defeats the day, the darkness in the morning. We too shine like lights in the darkness because we have now entered into an economy that is the very economy of God, which is an economy that gives life instead of sucks it out of others. You know, in in Matthew 20, in the very same context in which Jesus had those two sons of thunder come to him in insensitivity, Jesus said this. He replied, these were his words to those two. He said, you know. In other words, you've seen it, you've experienced, very likely you've done it. You know. That the way it it is in this world is that people lord over other people. It's all about them. It's all about what they can get. And he said, not so with you. You've entered into an entirely different methodology. An economy where if you want to be great, you should become the servant. And by the way, guys, I'm the prototype. I did not come to be served. I came to serve. I came to give my life to you and for you. And by the way, this is, this is incredible. That's not just what he did. It is actually who he is. It's his identity. Nine separate times in the Old Testament, the Messiah is called not ruler, not king, but servant. What a mind-boggling thought, isn't it, that the God who created man would serve the very man he created? And what did that mean? It meant that he would bring to man what man most desperately needed. We have now been placed into a kingdom, my friends, that is a kingdom of servanthood. Where Jesus himself is the supreme servant. In Luke, he sought to teach them. He said, who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves the table? And then he answered, is it not the one who reclines? And his point is, that's the way it is in the world. But it's not the way it is with us. Because he then went on to say, but I am among you. And I'm the one who's serving. True greatness, my friends, is not found in what a man secures. But in how he serves. This he told them and then he showed them. Again, just before his death, 
while those two are saying, you know, it's all about us. You're about to die and get beaten and whipped and betrayed. But you know, it's, it's really all about us and we need to be on the right hand and the left hand. In that same context, Jesus takes off his outer garment, picks up a basin, kneels down to wash their feet. You got to get into the historical context of this. This is not like me washing one of your feet right now or you washing one of my feet. I showered this morning. I hope you did. I put on clean socks. I hope you did. But even if you put on socks from yesterday, that's not that bad of a deal. One writer helped me with this. He said, the 12 pairs of feet that Jesus washed belong to hairy men. That's a great start who walked rough roads, dusty roads, roads shared with all manner of livestock. You know what that means. In a time when roads were not cleaned and there were no daily showers. And he went on to say, this was the job of a slave and not just a slave, the lowest slave in the household. The disciples resisted that. What did Jesus say? If you don't let me do this, you have no part in the kingdom. You've just had an Indy 500 syndrome. For three and a half years, I've tried to tell you and you didn't get it. This is kingdom of serving. And this is my last chance to show that to you before I show you in the ultimate way I can by laying down my life for you. They resisted, but Jesus persisted. We're really not going to be experiencing the Christian life unless we, unless we enter in to sharing the identity that he has. The identity of being a servant. That's what makes being in Christ so wonderful. He took us out of that self-orientation and put selfless hearts in us. And not only that, he opened our eyes to see the needs of others where before we could only see the needs of ourselves. So now we, we have the ability with the Holy Spirit living in us, not only to see the need, but to actually fulfill the need and meet the need of others and stand out like flickering lights in a very dark world. I want you to turn to Philippians and we'll wind this down. Philippians chapter two. We're gonna break it up into little parts. Verse 1, this is the stated reality, we'll call it. Look at verse 1. If, stop right there. Oh my goodness, did you see it? What did he say? Help me, what did he say? If, oh my goodness, that's a first class condition in Greek grammar. Isn't that exciting? You can show that tomorrow morning at work. We saw a first class condition yesterday. Wow. What does it mean? 
It's if and there is. In other words, this is not a hypothetical if. This is stated reality. We could translate it since. I would prefer to translate it because. Now let's read it. Because there's consolation in Christ. He has met my weary heart and brought it to life. Because there's comfort of love, I'm loved. That's so powerful. I want you to love me, but if you don't, I'm going to be okay. And all of us can say that. There's not a moment in a 24-hour day that we're not loved. Because we have the Spirit and are in intimate fellowship with Him. Because we've been given tender mercies and compassions. Therefore, let's have the sanctified response. Fulfill my joy. Be, be of the same mind. The same love. One accord. One goal. One purpose. And what is that? The radical break from the old life. And the radical entrance into the new. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. You don't have to, to strive anymore to acquire. You've already got it all. In humility of mind, understand who you are. You're the container of God. You're the Richard expression of Jesus. You're the Janet expression of Jesus. When people come in contact with you, they now can see God in you. That's who you are. Do you realize that, that everywhere you put your foot is holy ground? Think back to Moses. Moses is out in the wilderness. He comes across a bush. The bush is burning, but it's not burning. The bush is on fire, but there's, no, there's fire in the bush, but the bush isn't burning. That'll tweak you. So being male, what did he do? He went to investigate. If he was female, he went, ah, I got to go tell my friends. <laughs> I heard that. And as he got closer, what happened? There was a voice. What did the voice say? Take shoes off, boy. Louisiana version of the Bible. <laughs> Why? Holy ground. What made it holy? Presence of God. Where's the presence of God now? My goodness, I should take my shoes off in your presence. I'm not being facetious, baby. I want you to think. It's who you are. And you're radical. Humility of mind. Think correctly. Esteem others better than yourself. Don't look on your own needs. It's okay to look on your own needs. But also look on others. This mind, let it be in you. What mind? The mind that was Jesus. Who understood who he was. So he could function as a servant without it affecting who he was. And he took on the form of a man. And he laid down his life. Because that was the greatest way to love and serve. That's exactly what we now have the opportunity to do. I am so thankful to have been delivered from the arrogant, selfish, controlling, manipulative, prideful little stinker that I was. 
And I'm especially glad that God did that for me before I met Janet or she would have never had a part of me. And I'm so thankful that now I have the opportunity to love others with the love of God, to serve others with his own serving life so that by coming in contact with this, they can taste and experience God. And this is all of us. There are not enough thanks available on our lips to glorify God for who he has made us in Jesus Christ. There are just not enough words of thanks. What we will do instead is remember him in his table. Guys, Jesse, I was going to go to Matthew 25, but... We don't have time. Here's a novel idea. Go read it. Let's pray as the men come. And musicians come. Father, thank you for this table. Thank you that it reminds us of the great love and servant's heart that you have, that, that Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, would call himself the servant. And thank you that that servant life that servant identity is who we now are because that servant life lives within us. And we stand in awe of the transformation that you've accomplished in all our lives. We celebrate this table and say thank you in Jesus' name. All right, that does it for today's message. Pastor Frank will continue his Being Thankful series next Sunday, and we'll share that again with you a week from today. And don't forget, we'll be back again this Friday with another edition of Conversations in Grace. We hope to see you then.